0: This week, we're answering your questions and you're watching and listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. So those of you that are audio subscribers to the podcast, you probably caught that you might be watching this as well. So I'm going to attempt and we'll see how long I actually stick with this, but I'm going to attempt to record video along with audio for all of these podcast episodes. So those of you watching this on YouTube, you're listening to the landscape photography podcast. This is available on iTunes and Spotify, all of those things. So if it's more convenient to listen to a podcast in the car. You can check it out over there. Those of you guys that actually are subscribers to the audio show, if you want to watch me on YouTube, you can do that as well. I'm going to try to record video along with all future episodes. We'll see how long I can stick with that. So why has it taken so long to get this episode out? Well, first of all, I got very busy with workshops. You know, I was leading workshops in the Faroe Islands um, had that trip to Scotland. I've been out and about and gone a lot and it makes it really easy to fall behind and uh, some of the other stuff that I do like the podcast. But then I came back and after, you know, creating YouTube videos and leading workshops, I was just kind of sick of the sound of my own voice. If I'm being honest, like I, I'm not somebody that's really, um, overly confident or in love with, with the sound of my own voice, and it tends to um, make recording some of these a little bit more challenging because I'm just kind of tired of hearing myself sometimes. So for that reason, I've taken a break from the podcast, but I'm back, and hopefully we'll we'll be consistent for here on out for at least a little bit. So let's jump into today's show where I'm answering some of the questions that came in on the Facebook group. If you would like to partake in some of those questions... We have a Facebook group called the landscape photography podcast, and that's where people offer images uh, for critique for the community to critique. I jump in on that as well, but we also you know, take a lot of suggestions from that Facebook group for directions for the show. So whether it's future guests, future topics or questions to be answered on episodes like this, that's where all that stuff comes from. So if you'd like to partake in that, just uh, join the Facebook group over there. All right, let's jump into it. First question is from Andre. He asks, where do you see your photography now as opposed to, say, two years ago? Has it evolved? What has changed in my style and approach, and where do I see myself in two years? So, you know, I I definitely feel like some of my growth has plateaued a little bit. Two years ago, I was not as good as I am now, I don't think, um, but I will say that I haven't improved as much as I would like to say that I've improved in the last two years. I think two years ago I was leading far less workshops and I was able to shoot on my own and shoot for myself a lot more. That's the downside to leading workshops as often as somebody like me does is that I very seldom get to just go out and shoot for myself. And that can be kind of a kind of a problem because, you know, you're in a workshop environment you know, ideally the participants come first and my photographs come second or third. And, you know, that takes a toll after a while when that's the only type of shooting you ever get to do. So I haven't got to shoot as much as I would like to on my own. I still shoot a lot. Get me or don't get me wrong. Like I shoot more than most people get to, you know, the people that have day jobs and stuff. But I have not seen the growth in my own photography that I'd like to see. I feel like lately, especially in my post processing, I'm getting almost too tasteful. You know, two years ago, a lot of my edits were very heavy handed. You know, I had just learned all of these new techniques and I was implementing them all on every photo. And that's not always the best technique. And so a lot of my work was just over edited, honestly. And now I've, I've been working on dialing that back for the last two years, trying to get more tasteful and, and uh, more discreet with my editing. But now I'll find myself processing a photo for like 45 minutes. I get back, I get done I look at the screen and I'm like, that almost looks straight out of camera. <laughs> like, did you do anything? What, what do you have to show for the last 45 minutes? Um, so, you know, I, I feel like some of my most recent work lacks that. Dramatic pop that I would like it to have. I've I've been erring on the side of not um, not heavy-handed enough editing or not editing enough. That's what I'm struggling with currently. So I'm in two years. I hope to be at a place where I'm fine. I'm striking that perfect balance where things are processed to a point of nice stylization and has that wow factor, but it's not straight up fantasy land. It's what I'm always striving for. Josiah asks, I'm interested to in know how you've made a name locally versus online or if I have a local focus. What slice of my business is local versus what is online? You know, when I first was a, became a full-time photographer, all of my photography work was local. I was shooting portraits and weddings and real estate, sports for the no- local newspaper. I was very much a generalist. And for that reason, my focus was very much local. So the, the marketing that I did was still just, you know, social media and it was word of mouth and networking with local people. But it was done with a local emphasis. So I was, you know, finding a lot of local business owners through facebook or maybe just meeting them in person i would do a shoot for one business owner if we're talking real estate and that would lead to the next because if i did a good job for them they'd recommend me to a friend nowadays though my things have changed dramatically for me as as my youtube channel grow grew as you know my instagram following has grown i'm followed by a whole lot more just photographers rather than you know people potential photography clients the majority of the people that follow me are other photographers and that has opened up opened up the the possibility for the the educational side of things that I do the workshops the tutorials that stuff. But none of that was ever a plan for me. Nothing that I've ever done with photography has been because I had this entrepreneurial spirit where I was going to go make a bunch of money and create a business. None of that came from wanting to make money. It all came from just wanting to be a good photographer. And as my photography skills grew, more people wanted to know what it was that I knew. It just kind of evolved organically. And I think that's one of the, the best pieces of advice that I can give people is, you know, focus on, focus on the photography aspect. Don't, don't do things for the wrong reasons. Don't do things for money. Don't do things for the popularity aspect. Do it because you love doing it. And if you love doing it enough and you get good enough at something, people are going to acknowledge that respect you for it and opportunities will become because of it. Braden asks, how do you adjust the different conditions when you're committed to a time and a spot? Say you're on a vacation or something. So harsh light during the middle of the day, overcast days. What do you do in those less than optimal shooting conditions? Well, I've talked about this a lot, you know, especially on on my YouTube channel where you know when the light sucks it changes how you have to approach a scene you can't just go in with a preconceived notion of i'm going to get the big wide landscape but if you try doing that on a big cloudless day in the middle of the afternoon it's just you're not going to get a good photo from it so i shoot i change what i shoot based on light conditions so if if we are greeted with that cloudless day which unfortunately happens pretty often I start thinking about what is going to look good with that harsh contrast that you're going to have. Direct light equals harsh contrast and sometimes you can use that contrast to your benefit. So I talk about shooting in forests a lot and the nice part about that is that that direct sunlight can really emphasize, you know, certain objects or subjects in, in a forest scene because You'll have a primarily dark, dark forest or a dark, you know, area in a forest with little beams or little splashes of light falling on foliage or tree trunks or whatever it is. Maybe you're backlighting everything with that direct light and everything takes on that kind of backlit glowy atmospheric feel. You can use that stuff to your advantage. It takes a very chaotic scene and simplifies it because you're letting the light dictate where you shoot. So the same is kind of true for when you have those overcast days. When you have a, an overcast day with a whole lot of a whole lot of cloud cover, you have to think of it in terms of you have a giant soft box in the sky. It, it kills that contrast. It makes everything very soft and evenly lit. Sometimes forest scenes can be way more difficult on an overcast day because you don't have the benefit of the light splashing on subjects and drawing attention to things. Everything is even which means that you know you can shoot in any direction. You don't have direction limitations. You can compose shots in any direction. All of that contrast is either going to have to come from subject matter, so maybe you have a bright tree trunk in the middle of it surrounded by dark foliage, or it's gonna have to come in post. So a lot of times overcast shots they're a little bit more fun to post process because you're in more con- you have far more control over where that contrast and where those highlights are going to fall based on how you dodge and burn that scene. If we're talking outside of a forest scene, a lot of times if I have that overcast sky, that's going to lend itself much better to Kind of more of those little vignettes. You have to change what it is that you shoot. Take a telephoto lens and shoot little vignettes of the scene rather than the big grand landscape. Focus on the little things that make that area different. Maybe it's interesting rock formations, maybe, you know, it's a macro shot of of the tiny pebbles on a beach, whatever it happens to be. Also, there is something to be said for When you do have those overcast skies, sometimes you have to envision what that cloudy sky is going to look like if it's two stops darker with a whole bunch of contrast added to it. Sometimes the the texture that is in that sky can really lend itself well to post-processing. So I'm always kind of envisioning how I might post-process something like that as well. Chris asks, best way to improve as a beginner? Do you join a club, get out and practice a lot? And how do you know what needs to improve? You know, I've never I've never been really a big fan of photo clubs and stuff and I think the reason reason for that is that they kind of just they they almost breed competitive I don't know, there's this competitive thing going on in photo clubs. While, you know, sometimes that's cool, I think it's not nearly as beneficial or constructive as it could be. For me, uh, my biggest recommendation for getting better quickly is uh, a you have to shoot a lot. You know, just have a lot of familiarity with your camera. The more you go out and shoot, the the better you're going to get, the faster you're going to get better. But finding a small group of friends or maybe it's just one or two friends to go out and shoot with pretty often is such a big deal you know, especially if you can find somebody that's more experienced and better than you are to go out and shoot with. They There's so much that you can learn from other photographers. And there's that whole aspect of, you know, you, you kind of feed off of each other. Like nobody wants to be the lame one that doesn't get up for sunrise. So everybody gets up and you get out and shoot. And a lot of times... You're just more fruitful and you try a little harder when you go out with a group of friends. It's more fun and you have the, those um, other people to bounce ideas off of. You post-process an image, send it to them, and they're like, what are you doing? Your colors are all wrong and then you, you can fix things. So find a small group of friends and just go out and shoot with each other, bounce, uh, bounce uh, photos off each other for critique. Um, that's, that's one of the best things you can do when you're first starting. Scott asks, did the move to Sony allow me to make better photographs? Did it make me a better photographer than when I was with Canon? Not really. I mean, cameras are tools. And granted, I feel like I have better tools available to me now, but I don't think that I'm a better photographer or making better images since I've switched to Sony. Granted, I have higher resolution images. You know, I can print them larger. And it's made it's changed the way I've shot a lot by having a sensor with far more dynamic range It means that a lot of times I don't have to bracket like I used to have to bracket You know a lot of times I can just expose for the highlights in the scene And even if the left side of my histogram goes a little ways off the edge of the histogram I know that I've got enough latitude to be able to recover those shadows Which means I don't have to bracket as much which means that the post-processing part is easier Having said that though, it's a, it's kind of a crutch that you can get into where knowing that you have that latitude can kind of make you lazy. And I feel like maybe I've gotten a little bit lazy with my bracketing and exposure blending and stuff. Um, just because you know that you can, you can make a passable image, image by just exposing for the highlights, even though you'd get a little bit higher quality image by still continuing to bracket expose to the right. And then Use that brighter exposure for your shadow areas. That's the best case scenario, but sometimes I get a little bit lazy. Where it has made the biggest difference, and honestly, is one of the biggest factors in me switching over to Sony, was the video quality. You know, the more YouTube content that I create, the bigger the deal the video aspect is. And it's nice now that I've switched to Sony. I carry with me two bodies they're both full frame they both take the same same batteries same lenses and they're both excellent video cameras so it doesn't matter what I'm shooting with one camera I can be filming myself do it with the other that's not something I could really do with Canon I'm not going to be holding a 5D Mark IV out in front of me and trying to vlog with it it would break my arm but it's really easy to do with the Sony cameras. Scott asks, are you using your rooftop tent much these days? And do you have any new vehicle plans? So those of you that don't know this, I have a James Baroud rooftop tent, which is one of the hard shell tents. They're really, really cool because essentially anywhere that you can park, you can essentially camp. So you don't need, you know, a, a nice smooth place to lay down a tent. It can be snowy or muddy or just terrible weather and it totally doesn't bother you because you're up off the ground on top of your car. Also, if you're w- nervous or worried about predators or animals or snakes or bugs or whatever, it's really nice to be up off the ground on top of your car. Um, they are very expensive. There's a huge sticker shock to them. I think mine was like $3,700, which when you hear that, it just sounds like a ridiculous amount, but it's a tent that's gonna last for you know years and years and years. And one of the cooler parts of it is, as a photographer, I can set up my campsite, quote unquote, I can set up my tent in about 30 seconds. I can tear it down in about two minutes. When I went to Scotland, I tested out the whole van life thing. I rented from Outdoorsy a Volkswagen, Oh, what was it, a Volkswagen conversion van of some kind. And I found that to be so much more convenient than a rooftop tent, simply because, you know, sometimes during sunrise, you don't want to roll out of bed and then have to collapse, you know, tear down your tent so you can drive to a sunrise shoot. What's nice is in a van, you can roll out of bed, hop in the front seat and drive off and that's really really convenient really nice it's also nice because when it gets cold out you have a heater you know you can stay warm during the winter months you have a sink and you have a stove and you can you know make your breakfast all right there is i got kind of used to it and uh, kind of spoiled by the the van life thing so i can envision myself doing some kind of van conversion but i The problem is I don't know what I would want to convert because I would want four wheel drive, but I don't want one of those giant Mercedes sprinter vans. Those things are ridiculously tall. So I'm not sure what I would, I would do it based off of, but I could foresee myself doing a van conversion. David asks, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the landscape photography workshop scene. There are a ton of guys out there doing this, and it's very hard to tell the difference between a photo safari and a legitimate teaching workshop. Where do I fit in in that scale and how do I feel about the various formats of workshops offered uh, versus getting a client to just a great location versus actually teaching them something. This is a really important question nowadays, I think, just because there are, like David mentions, there are so many workshops going on. First of all, one of the reasons that this is a thing is that you have many, many amazing photographers out there. And if you are an amazing photographer with a large social media following, uh, you could easily sell out a workshop. Doesn't mean that you should be doing workshops, however. Some of the advice that I give people is that if you are thinking about going on a workshop with someone, that person that you're thinking about going on the workshop with should have an example of their teaching style somewhere in video form on the internet somewhere. Between YouTube and people that sell tutorials, most people that are interested in education have an example of their teaching style somewhere on the internet. And if they don't, that's kind of a red flag because If you're interested in education, you should be, have examples of you educating, right? So I highly recommend that you do a little bit of background, you know, investigation before you invest in a workshop. And another thing is that you want to make sure that you're going on workshops with people that you you not only like their photography, but you can kind of, it feels like somebody that you could relate to or somebody that you would want to spend a week of your time with. Not everybody is going to resonate well with somebody like me that's a little bit more laid back and unprofessional, and that person might be better served going on a workshop with somebody that is very professor-like, very highly organized, none of this frivolous nonsense, you know, and everybody has a different learning style, and you need to find somebody that is going to offer a teaching style that to complement that. And it shouldn't be difficult because literally there's thousands of workshops being led by different people. So just make sure that the people that you are going on a workshop with are people that have examples of them actually teaching somewhere on in video form and make sure that, you know, it's somebody that you not only respect their work, but you respect or you like the, the way they the way that they present information. Um, yeah, so that's what I recommend to people. Janik asks, I personally haven't sold any artwork in the past few years, and I would love any tips and ideas on creating new sales. I know it's a bit of a boring question, but I'm sure others would like to hear the answer to this. So first of all, I've done an episode in the past with Ryan Smith. If you haven't heard that one, check it check that out because Ryan makes a killing off off print sales and he knows what he's talking about and he can probably make some better points than i'm about to make but check that out if you haven't already um so some of the things that i would highly recommend is first of all get your work your physical work your physical printed work in a physical place in front of people with their physical eyes you know there's there's nothing that competes with actually seeing a print in person don't just try to sell your artwork online on your website everybody is doing that and it's really hard to make any kind of impact in a online type situation so try to get it print it physically get it in a physical place the other thing is is try to make those prints as big and impactful as you can afford to make them so print them on a really nice print medium maybe it's acrylic maybe it's a really large metal print And also, print them as large as you can afford to. So, you know, a giant, you know, 60 inch print is going to have far more impact than a little 24 inch one. Just because a buyer might not be able to afford that big one that's on the wall, it's still going to have that initial impact, that initial wow factor, and they're going to end up staring at your photo longer which you know increases the opportunity for making a sale. Also make sure that you're putting them in a place where people are going expecting to spend money. You know, a lot of restaurants will allow photographers to hang their work up on the walls for free. I've never sold a print that way or I've sold very few prints that way. But if you can put a print up in a place, say like a winery where people are going to spend a, spend a fair bit of money, or maybe it's like a local art fair or something like that. If you can set up a booth like that, people are going there with the intention of checking out art and probably spending money on it. You're far more likely to make a sale in that kind of environment than you would be at like a restaurant or something. So those are some of my biggest tips. Also make sure that whatever you're printing is kind of unique to you. What I mean by that is if I was to just make a print of every iconic place that I've been to, all my Mesa arches and horseshoe bend images or whatever, my photography is not going to stand out from the next guys. You know, everybody is printing those type of images. So what what I think that people should do, is print work that is very specific to them. So like, for example, if somebody thinks about me, they might be thinking of seascapes or wave images or something like that. So I would print out a, a, some of my best portfolio work of that type of imagery. And that way it's, it makes my stuff separate and different from somebody that might be set up next to me or, or whatever. So make sure your stuff is unique to you print it large and impactful, and get it physically in front of others. Dan asks, how do I stay inspired, stay fresh, and get out of the inspirational rut? I wish I had a great, great answer for that because I'm kind of in one myself. My problem is that as somebody that does it full-time, I feel very much pressured, not only because I have a YouTube channel and a podcast to be publishing to, and all my social media stuff, but I also have to make a living. (laughs) So I feel very pressured to, you know, to be producing and creating all of the time and, and to think about one thing all the time. And I think that's very much not a healthy thing for a human brain. We need diversity in order to remain excited and inspired by things. So one of my biggest pieces of advice is that you need to allow yourself to take a break from things. It doesn't matter what it is, what interest it is. You have to take a break from it at some point. You can't just think about it all day, every day for years on end and not get burnt out. You have to give yourself a break. So when you're not feeling super inspired, allow yourself to take that break. Erin Bobnick gave me one of the best pieces of advice. She says that when you're in a creative rut, you have to focus on input rather than output. And I've, I try to take that to heart. And what she means by that is, you know, when you're not feeling inspired to create or when you're not loving what it is that you are creating, take a break from creating and just focus on, you know, appreciation, appreciating artwork of other kinds. Maybe it's, you know, going to a concert and listening to music. Maybe it's watching tutorials and learning something new and, and focusing on just learning new skills. Maybe it's you know just watching them um, watching Game of Thrones and appreciating the color grading and the the lighting that they have in the show. Focusing on you know creative input and inspiration eventually will inspire you to start creating again, and you'll be more excited about the stuff that you are creating once you've allowed yourself to you know to become re-inspired. Don't force yourself to create when you're feeling uninspired because you're not going to like that work anyway. Okay. The last question is going to be from Brian Pex. He says, name three things or one thing that has dramatically improved your work. So I've probably focused on this or I've, I've emphasized it too much. Maybe I, and maybe it's not too much. Maybe it's just right. Post-processing is so important. And in my opinion, Editing and post-processing is 50% of the creative process of photography. For example, you can have Joe Schmo and like Ryan Dyer or Michael Shane Bloom or insert amazing photographer here. And the thing that's going to separate them, even though they're shooting the same scene at the same time, you know, three feet from each other is the way that person on the right, non-Joe Schmo, Michael Shane Bloom or ryan dyer is going to post process that image that's where all of the personality and all the mood and all the emotion and all the style and all the feeling is coming from a camera is designed to capture data that's literally what what modern digital cameras are doing they're just capturing data a raw file is flat by definition and what you need to do is you need to inject some of that style that feeling that mood back into the photo and that comes from post-processing. You know, this this person over here is going to see a scene, even though they're standing next to each other, completely different than this person over here. Post-processing is also where we inject our brain filter back into the equation. Remember that we're seeing things through our brain filter. We're noticing some things, our brain is filtering out the things that are not interesting to us. But our camera sees all and it sees all equally. So when we post-process, we're really trying to emphasize the things that we liked and we noticed and de-emphasize or downplay the things that we did not like and did not notice at the time. Post-processing is where all of that stuff comes from. It's also where the feeling and the mood comes from. So in my opinion, when I started to really improve at post-processing and really put more effort into get, getting better and getting more tasteful of post processing that's really where my my photography started to take off that was kind of the springboard that that made me grow more quickly than you know no understanding the exposure triangle because you can have an amazing photographer that doesn't understand their settings but is an amazing post processor though that photographer is probably going to outshoot or create more interesting work Than the photographer that everything they shoot is straight out of camera, but they're amazing at their settings. Like there's, there's lots of those people, people that are not good at post-processing, but understand the camera aspect, but it's the really amazing post-processors that their artwork stands out from the crowd oftentimes. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week. I hope you guys hold me to this. I'm going to attempt to record video for all or most episodes moving forward. We'll see how we do, but hopefully you guys have enjoyed this and we'll see you in the next episode. Take it easy, everybody.